Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast. We're the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones. We're on BaldMove.com. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Anthony. And we are also, for the next few weeks, the officially official podcast for the new book, Gods of Thrones, A Pilgrim's Guide to the Religions of Ice and Fire, written by both myself and Anthony. Uh, if you've been listening to our special coverage of this over the last few weeks, you know that Anthony is a religious scholar who teaches at a university uh, and is an expert on religions and ancient religions and cultures, and we have brought our twin expertise together to write this book that we're very proud of, um, and we are celebrating all throughout the month of November and well on into December this this new book, Gods of Thrones, as well as George Martin. Uh, has also not been been resting on his laurels. Well, he, he's been he's he's been he's been resting a little bit. Let's a little let's bit. Honest. Not just. I mean, we bit. shouldn't say on his laurels. He's been he's been resting in other ways on his residuals. <laughs> <laughs> he's been, uh, but he's coming out with something new this this month. Fire and Blood actually comes out next week, and we are going to be also talking about that. I think. What what I think we should do, Anthony, is like next week um, we're going to get the book in our hands. Maybe we can talk about some things that jumped out at us. But the week of Thanksgiving, I would like to have a podcast uh, of the first third of that book. Um, and we're going to have a couple other co-hosts from Game of Thrones Podcasting Universe joining us. It should be a lot of fun. I want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping uh, before we begin. I know a lot of people have been asking because thus far this version of the book has only been available as an ebook, uh, unless you're a Kickstarter. Well, now we have a paperback version in the Amazon store. It is available for purchase right now. You can get it. I've got um, I got a proof of it. It looks really great. Uh, it's a very faithful replication of um, what we what we did for the Kickstarter. There is the Kickstarter has a few grace notes, like it has a really beautiful cover art illustrated interior cover um, that the the Kickstarter version doesn't have, and a couple other minor differences. But it's it's real good. I think you guys are going to be very happy, and it's available right now. There's a link to the Amazon store in this here show notes. You can go and click on it and purchase it. The Dead Tree copy is available. It was made entirely, 100% by Weirwood Trees. <laughs> and um, Aaron, it, would you the, say that this book would be um, an appropriate holiday gift? Uh, just curious. I, you know, it's like you read my mind, Anthony. You must have been plugged into those Weirwoods before we cut them down <laughs> because, yes, I think, if, especially if, if you've got a hard-to-please Game of Thrones fan in your life that might not be a Game of Thrones fan, and... By our statistics, there's some uh, there's something like ninety nine million nine hundred thousand of those types of people uh, throughout the world. Uh, then I think this book would be would be great for them because I guarantee they're gonna have it's it's a fun read. Um, there's there's parts of this book that I consider hilarious, but you know that's a subjective opinion. The thing that's not a subjective opinion is there's lots of new information and ways at looking at the series um, that even seasoned Game of Thrones veterans are going to they're they're going to pick up on and or or novel fans because it's for both. Um, so yeah, snap that up. It'll look good on the tree. It's maybe a little bit big for a stocking stuffer. You got to have like a six and a half inch wide stocking to stuff it down. But, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 great. it's great. Most stockings would accommodate. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the larger book. We tried it in a couple different sizes. 
Um, yeah, it's it's slightly wider than your nine by six trade, um, and you know it's uh it's uh, everyone's stocking's different, so so get your tape measure out and check. <laughs> of course, you always need that one gift that kind of just protrudes out, just to kind of indicate that that this stocking is over full. Yeah, you need that stocking like stuffer, like the actual the 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 thing that tamps. Yeah, yeah, that's like the, the plug. crowning achievement of the stocking. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Alcade from Georgia asks, is there any timeline in the works for Volume 2? So uh, if you're a Kickstarter, you know that one of the milestones we hit on the Kickstarter path was a second volume. Because when we were writing this book, we kept on pulling stuff out to hit our publishing target to keep you know to keep costs down and to kind of have a reasonable... Um, viable product that could hit the shelves and uh, a lot of that stuff is really good uh and we thought we had enough to make a second volume and we got that goal so we are actually writing volume two right now Anthony, do you want to speak to like the timeline yeah, on that um i think that number one this is just my 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 bias but um i think volume two may be better than volume one um, if for no other reason than a few of my favorite topics ended up landing in volume two, I would say that as far as it being writ, how far has it been written? I would say that it's probably 90% written, but then the, the editing process normally takes about four months. So <clears throat> assuming that sort of we, we round up the writing this month, uh, I think that we are going to be able to drop this just in time for um, April 1st, which was, corresponds, I think, well, because uh, Season 8 drops in mid-April. Is that right? Mid-April? We'll have good company. We'll have good company when we're dropping Game of Thrones material. The, the officially official and the unofficially, or officially unofficial, will be dropping about the same time. Then I also want to give an update on the shipping for the Kickstarter, because I know a lot of people are excited about that. We got all of the, all of just the basic book, the non-international basic book stuff shipped out this week. So if you didn't have like a t-shirt add-on or anything extra requested or, or your, your Kickstarter level didn't come with a signed copy... Uh, then that or has already gone out, and you should be getting it soon. Uh, the international plus signed copies are going out this week, and it's looking like the t-shirt and like hoodie add-on type of orders are going out the week after. So we should have everything shipped out by Thanksgiving, which is going to be nice, uh, and we can uh, you know fully concentrate back on volume two. Uh, also, I so Anthony and I got together this weekend to trade materials and shipping supplies and stuff, and. It was super nice, and I was very surprised and pleased by you presenting me a framed copy of her book cover. That was a that's that, that's, uh, that's 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 a nice touch, man. That's classy as hell. Thank yeah, you very that, much. My, my pleasure. I for my one of my first book, I think my very first book. Um, someone was uh, someone did that for me. Someone just took the you know the first book cover that had been printed off the press. And just put it in a, a nice little frame. And um, honestly, I don't know where that ended up. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, my, I'm not sure where, where I've got up. that. I think I've moved like four times since then. But I figured um, eventually you and Jim will land in uh, you know a, a new Bald Move studio. And uh, maybe that makes it up onto the, the foyer wall or something like that. 
It's it's already made it up on my home studio wall. Okay, it's, well, it's cool. got a, it's awesome. it's it's got a place of uh, pride right over or over my left shoulder here. Uh, so thanks for that. That that was really cool. And if you want to see a picture of me and Anthony posing with that that my wife took, uh, you can hit any of our social medias: Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Well, I, I post it to all three. So. Um, we are going to, before we get into the, 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 the thick of the content, we are going to, we, we, we've got a, a goal that we've set for ourselves to get, to amass 50 Amazon reviews. Uh, we, we, in our research, we see that that is a key to, to getting a critical mass of, uh, uh, of, of excitement around the book. We also had a goal to get attached to George Martin's fire and blood with our release schedule. And we achieved that we are, Further down on the list of things associated with Fire and Blood, but we want to kind of claw our way up. And if you are moved to give us a review of the book, that would help us out a lot. We are about halfway towards that goal of 50 right now. And if you've read the book and enjoyed it, or not, or you read the book, you thought it's crap. Uh, that's valuable information to head over to Amazon. Again, the link to that is right in these show notes and give us a review. We've got a selection that we've gotten in the last two weeks that I wanted to read just as encouragement and also um, assurance that this book is not a complete waste of time. This is not a scam. This is an actual serious book that's also funny and entertaining. Uh, I'm going to read the first one and then maybe you can read the second, Anthony. Yep. Michael. Since George, uh, since Germ George R. R. Martin is in the business of writing historical compendiums now, instead of finishing the series proper, he should really hire Anthony and Aaron to at least write the parts dealing with the weird religions and strange cultures, because they've proven themselves go-to experts on the subject with this book. The combination of the author's impeccable scholarly knowledge and spectacularly dry wit will be sure to hold your attention or the attention of any fan, be they book purist or show watcher only. This book is sure to hold you over through the long, cold winds of winter until the dream of spring comes around, and with it, hopefully, a new book. Get on it, George. Yes, yes, we can we can add to that chorus. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for the very nice review, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Nathan writes, I really enjoyed reading this book. It was actually surprised to learn how much about the things in the real world. Many references were made to other cultures, historical events, and religions that led me to looking up other things and learning about history of the real world. The insights and conjecture about Martin's world were also quite fun and insightful. Thank you, Nathan. If you want to be surprised by the quality of the book as much as Nathan was, you can purchase it now in in Kindle or hard copy version on Amazon.com today. And again, that link is in the show notes. Uh, let's get on to the actual meat, the actual content that people are, are here for, Anthony. And you know, one of the features we debuted last last week in this kind of this this special coverage of Gods of Thrones is deep dives into specific characters. Last week I chose Tyrion and if you missed that you can listen to us talk about Tyrion for over an hour. Today we'll be talking about one Catelyn Stark. An interesting choice, an interesting choice you made. Um I would say that if you listed a list of popular characters in Game of Thrones that Catelyn would probably not be at the tops of many people's list. That was a that was a bold choice of yours. Uh, well, I think what, what, I mean, I like many people really enjoy Arya and the Hound and Tyrion and you know, you you can you can make a long list. I don't know if Cat is necessarily on my favorite list, uh, although I really do enjoy um her in the books. But I think she's one of the more interesting characters um, in, by by contrast. So she has one of the mm. most interesting um, 
divergences in the two parallel uh, galaxies of of the the books and the, and the shows. So I thought that might might make an interesting conversation. Okay. Well, I want to get started because I, I, by my right of not selecting the character this week, uh, I get to challenge you to a trial by questioning. <laughs> right. And I have selected five questions, and I'm going to get started right now. First, I'm going to steal your move from last week and ask, when you're reading A Song of Ice and Fire, do you see Michelle Fairley, the actress who played Catelyn Stark on the TV show, in your mind's eye? You know, it's funny because I was just, we were saying last week that, you know, it's impossible not to see Peter Dinklage uh, when we're reading song now. But I think that I might, I, I think it may be different for me when I'm reading Cat. Um, I think that sometimes uh, fairly slips in there into my thoughtscape, but uh, maybe because these characters seem to have sort of different personalities or different um motivations i'm able to keep them separate but for whatever reason the answer is no i don't think that i my default mental image of catelyn stark looks like the hbo actor you know i it's it's funny because i asked exact for the exact same reason i was clearing out your notes from last week and i i I was struck by the peter dinklage thing and i'm like you and i you know we both talked about how the cast of game of thrones has largely kind of overwritten our our mind's eye of what we we saw the characters having before and i gotta say that i think cat stark is one of the few exceptions because i like michelle fairley and i think she did a very good job at uh, embodying the character's interior qualities but she does not i mean first of all she's from northern ireland ireland herself which is a lot of like you know the starks are cast from that um and i don't think that's really who she is in the book she's a she's a great southern lady um Mm -hmm. it would be like casting someone with a boston accent to play scarlett o'hara right and so that's jarring, and honestly, every time I get to a description of of Catelyn Stark in the books, I do not I do not see Michelle Fairley. I actually uh, one of the great what ifs is uh, Jennifer Ely of Pride and Prejudice fame was originally supposed. Oh, to I be, didn't know that. Yeah, she was originally supposed to be cast, and I think that she had a health issue, or there was something with her child that 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 caused her to pull out, and they cast Michelle Fairley instead. I think Jennifer Ely would be is kind of that type of of um, y- you know is, is the type of character that I, I see in my mind's eye when I hear uh, Catelyn Stark uh, spoke of in the books. So it is. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested. It's, it's kind of interesting that uh, we both both have that reaction, and I do think it's it, maybe it is all about like when I hear that brogue come out of her mouth. I don't think. Oh, this is a this is a woman who's had a hard time fitting into her rough and tumble northern upbringing. You know, like she's been right. this 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 southern flower plucked and then put into the icy winters of of Winterfell. It 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 seems like she fits there naturally, and that part of the character always felt a little a little false to me. That said, Michelle Fairley is fantastic, as you've just uh, indicated. She's able to pull uh, off the depth of emotion and, and bring some interesting stuff to the character that maybe isn't even in the books. Oh, but for sure. 
but just just as far as the the you know whoever was in in charge of casting, yeah, it's a little it's, it was a little bit of a um, an interesting choice. For I mean that said, I don't know if if any if I can imagine someone doing it better than than her, but. So this kind of the differences in book cat TV cat go beyond just the the, the skin deep, uh, and that leads to my second question: that the book book cat and TV cat, as we call them in our novel, have a lot of differences in their characters. One of the biggest differences is that book cat really pushes her husband Ned to accept the hand position for his friend Robert Baratheon, where in the TV show she pleads with him not to do so. How does that change fundamentally? change their characters and what other differences might it illuminate in your opinion yeah so this is one of the things the one of the very first things i noticed because i was re- i was watching the shows and reading the the first um the first novel um game simultaneously and it's, it was jarring to see the showrunners flip her motivation almost almost they almost do a 180 with her motivation in the book Catelyn is completely obsessed with this omen that has just happened and the omen is that ned and the boys have found a dead direwolf who has the antler of a stag protruding through its its, its throat and this this uh, seems to be an omen to her that some sort of conflict between her and the Baratheons, the Starks and the Baratheons, uh, are going to going to happen. Now, right. this may well be a self fulfilling prophecy because I think Cat has some some role to play in this. Um, but she's convinced; she's absolutely convinced that they have to make nice with the Baratheons. And so, when Robert a- asks Ned to or uh, to be to come south and and become hand of the king, she is adamant that he does this. She, she you know she implores him. She says you must not turn him down. Um, and 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 the reason why is that she's just convinced that that uh, that they have to avoid conflict with the Baratheons at all costs. Now Ned, being you know of old Northern stock, um, you know blood of the first men. He's more concerned with what's going on in the north and less concerned about what's going on in the south. And so he's really seriously considering turning Robert down. And uh, and he has to get talked into it by his southern-born wife. Uh, but in the show, yeah, think, this is totally opposite. Yeah, I also think that there's a little bit of the Tully in her that, you know, their words are family, duty, honor. Right. And that dutifulness is, you know, the second brightest star in their family's constellation. Right. And the idea that someone would, like, not heed a call to action or a, a call from from the legitimate uh, rightful ruler of the realm i think is is also something that is uh, borderline offensive to her in the same way that like ned takes his honor and the the truth the the truth telling very seriously she right. takes this kind of like perceived duty um and and that's something that's been that's been ingrained into her uh, since infancy uh with the tullys right right and I think that there's something unfortunate about the flip. And honestly, I don't. I, ha- I haven't ever heard the showrunners talk about why they made that choice. But I feel like it's disappointing because I feel like I've seen 
the trope once too often of the, you know, like it's like the Pepper Potts character who's begging mm-hmm. Tony Stark not to not to go off and and you know fight another bad guy. Yeah, because, it's the wet blanket spouse. Yeah, it's Rocky's it's, wife. Or, it's or the you know I don't know. I mean, you can you can name a thousand of these these times yeah. when the when the char- the male character has to go save the realm, and mm-hmm. the the his wife is this sort of homebody who's deeply concerned with keeping the home intact and couldn't give a rip for the realm. And so right. she's kind of nagging him. Hey, you can't go off and save the realm. You've got a, a wife and kids back home here. And I, I just feel like I, wh- whether whatever your opinion is on the feminism of it, I just feel like I've seen that trope a thousand times. And sure. it, it's one that Martin doesn't do. Martin, Martin really has has Cat almost pushing Ned out the door to go <laughs> to the south and do his duty. Um, and Ned is the homebody. And I thought that was an interesting. It was an interesting, and I think unfortunate choice uh, that the showrunners made. So I want to move on to my third question now, which is one of the reasons that I think Cat is a polarizing character amongst the fandom is that she makes a lot of uh, several impetuous, uh, spur of the moment decisions mm-hmm. that are perceived as problematic and. But the, the the two biggest ones I think are her arrest of Tyrion Lannister along and their chance encounter along the King's Road, and then consequently her freeing of Jamie Lannister. Mm-hmm. It's like these these Lannister boys are big trouble for Cat, <laughs> for, for Catelyn's politics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which of these decisions do you think is the most problematic, or is the? I mean. Yeah, arguably these started the war and made the war unwinnable. Which is the the biggest misstep in your opinion? I wrestled with this a little bit last night when you first sent these to me, and I th- I mean I think the obvious answer is her arresting of Tyrion. And I didn't want to just go with the obvious answer, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, the obvious answer in this case is the right answer because. If she didn't arrest Tyrion, it's it's possible that the war could have been avoided altogether, in which case there would have been no need to capture Jamie Lannister and yada, yada, yada. So I think that, of course, arresting Tyrion is, 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 the, is the worst of the two moves. But I do want to say this about, about Catelyn. I think that in George's world... You can be very, you can be really politically savvy, and still make a really bad decision. And and I don't mm-hmm. think it has to do with whether or not you're smart or stupid, or naive and or cunning. I think that um, sometimes there's this um, this issue of of luck or fate that's just baked into the narrative, so that. Even if you make all the right political moves, you may still, you know, be shot with a crossbow while you're in the shitter. Yeah, and that's something that um, I was in, in researching for topics to talk about. I was looking um, at various different writings on on Catlin, and I saw this one across uh, the Nerdstream era uh, dot blogspot dot com 
where they ana- analyze a lot of her like you know the what what the fandom calls boneheaded mistakes not just these two but this person made a pretty persuasive argument that this first like arresting of Tyrion Lannister like literally everything went wrong with Cat that to, that <laughs> made that into a phenomenally stupid decision because she intended to take him to um to Winterfell and if she had done that, then she has a hostage in Winterfell. They soon would have captured Jamie Lannister. And having both of Tywin's male heirs under com- control, that's not nothing in this. That you could really wrest a lot of powerful concessions from him. Yeah. Simultaneously, she counted on her husband and the king giving their full support. And there was a power base. She was counting on a power base at King's Landing of her husband and the, the rightful king that got interrupted by Cersei's plan to get him drunkenly hunting boars, which I don't think Tywin had any, he had any hand in it. So you, you, you can't chalk this up to like Tywin's brilliance. And then thirdly, she did not know her sister had gone stark raving mad and was going to do this impetuous trial by combat that would lead to her giant trump card leave you know getting out of her hands so all these if any of these things didn't go wrong like if the the support at king's landing had been solid and then tywin lannister responded by reaving and raping through the riverlands with gregor clegane he would have been a pariah like every one of the great houses would have lined up with the king against tywin if she had if if rob had jamie and you know, they had Tyrion safely in the dungeons of Winterfell. Tywin's hands would have been would have been tied. Similarly, if you know Liza had just given them shelter and, and a safe place to keep uh, the Tyrion, same deal. Yeah. So this, uh, like, I, I feel like you're right in retrospect. If you if you take all the decisions, this seems foolish. But how the hell was Cat to know that all of these things were going to line up against her? Right. And I have a little passage. I'm just going to read it real quick here. I'd like to put to rest this notion that Cat is foolish. All right. So this is this is from game. This is Tyrion's point of view. The rain had finally stopped and the dawn light was seeping through the wet cloth over his eyes when Catelyn Stark gave the command to dismount. Rough hands pulled him down from his horse, untied his wrists and yanked the hood off his head. When he saw the narrow stony road, foothills rising high and wild all around them, and the jagged snow-capped peaks of the distant horizon, all the hope went out of him in a rush. This is the high road, he gasped, and he looked at Lady Stark with accusation. The eastern road. You said we were riding for Winterfell. Catelyn Stark favored him with the faintest of smiles. Often and loudly, she agreed. No doubt your friends will ride that way. When they come out, when they come after us, I wish them good speed. Even now, long days later, the memory filled him with bitter rage. All his life, Tyrion had prided himself on his cunning, the only gift the gods had seen fit to give him. And yet, this seven times damned she wolf, Catelyn Stark, had outwitted him at every turn. The knowledge was more galling than the bare fact of his abduction. So, I guess my point here is that. Tyrion, who by all accounts is a good judge of character and super smart, has a very high opinion of of Catelyn Stark's cunning, and uh, and I I think she is kind of portrayed more uh, more foolishly in in the HBO series, um, mm-hmm. and I I think she's more a victim of bad luck than she is of foolish decisions. 
Yeah, and then if we look at the other decision that she's frequently vilified for, her freeing a Jamie Lannister, which is, I think, in isolation, pretty indefensible. Yeah. It's also the straw that broke the camel's back, and that camel's back was Rob's war campaign. And you got to understand that the camel's back is already pretty damn weak if a straw's breaking it. Right. So, yes, letting Jamie Lannister go was a bad call, and it's hard to defend, but... It was a desperation move in the in the in the twilight of hope of that campaign. So I mean, and people can can differ and and disagree, but I think that uh, yeah, that that's my read on it anyway. I mean, if you we're know? gonna if we're gonna be honest, I mean, she was definitely outsmarted by Littlefinger, but Peter Baelish. There's no is, shame in that. There's no shame in that. Peter Baelish is is like off the charts, you know. Super duper evil genius, right? So he's a professional schemer. She's a talented amateur at best. That's right, and it, right. So it's not. It's not like okay, either you're smart or you're foolish. It's just that there are levels to the 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 machinations, and and Peter Baelish is thinking ten moves ahead. And very few people can do that. Uh, all right. My next question is kind of like my my friend Joanna, who hosts the uh, Cast of Kings podcast with David Chin. Uh, one of the things she does at the convention, the, the Con of Thrones, is she hosts these great debates where mm-hmm. she'll have like this, this, this hypothetical situation. And then it's a freewheeling argument with the audience about, you know, who would win or uh, and this is kind of like in that vein. This question is, if all the male members of their prospective houses, the great houses, were killed and leadership reverted to the women of that house, who would win the Game of Thrones? And since it would probably be cheating to include Danny, since she has the supernatural advantages of her dragons, we're just going to conveniently remind everyone that she's stuck in Essos for probably all of eternity, and it's just <laughs> going to be the people... It's just going to be the houses actually in Westeros duking it out. So we got... Lady Catelyn for House Stark. We have Lady Olenna for House Tyrell. Cersei for House Lannister. Uh, Asha or Yara for for the Greyjoys. Arianne for House Martell. Liza for House Arryn. Are there any natural alliances here? Are there any natural rivalries? Who who you got? Who you got? Well, Arianne of House Martell is the obvious winner in this case. Really? No, I'm, I'm messing with you. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, it's like, well, I'm, I'm actually nervous. I have no idea what's about to come out of this man's mouth. <laughs> I would say Lady Elena uh, because I think as far as just overall cunning and uh, and the willingness to just do what's best for her house, she's almost Tywin's rival. And I think had she born, been born in a different time and place, or she had been born the the oldest male in her house, um, she would have been a force to been reckoned with. E- even though she is a force to be reckoned with, uh, dis- despite her social placement. And mm. um, however, that said, and I think that maybe the natural rivalry or the the natural alliance here is with Cersei, um, and it, because I think a lot of their their um, political agendas align. Uh, but like I said before, cunning doesn't necessarily win the day. You also have to have these other things like wealth and, um, you know, longstanding alliances and bannermen who, who will flock to your banner when necessary. 
and but I think that maybe Lady Elena still wins the day in this in this case. What do you think? Well, I think that's the obvious choice, and I'm going to have to try to shit on it uh, <laughs> to, to to keep playing the game because that's what you do. I'm going to try to climb the ladder of chaos because okay. she has. You're right. She has. She's. She is the. She would be the head woman for a very large and wealthy and powerful house. She's got a lot of natural gifts there. I will say that there is a little dark horse theory that maybe Lady Olena has got her at reputation for shrewd and cunning on the back of essentially being the naysayer. It's essentially being the hindsight. She, she's always viewing things uh-huh. in hindsight as 2020 because we very rarely actually get to see her you know, scheme head to head. And the time that she put all her chips to the center of the table in this television series, she crapped out. So... You know, I, I think you're right, though. Like, uh, Lady Olena, she does, like, like you imagine that if her and Tywin ever met on equal ground, because when she went to the, the city to meet with Tywin, they weren't equal. You know, Tywin was in a position of power. His family had consolidated the royal realm, and, and she was kind of, like, trying to, you know, barter from that position of essential weakness. If that position was flipped or if it was neutral, I kind of think that she might be able to run Tywin, especially if you go with the show universe where Tywin is secretly bankrupt and there's mm. only so many moves that he can make coasting on the former wealth and power of the family before, you know, it's, it's like uh, if, if they wanted to get in the Cold War, Reagan versus the Soviet style, they would bankrupt the Lannisters in sh- short order. So, it's also boring if we disagree. I'm going to go with Asha or Yara uh, for the Greyjoys because she's very pow- she she in her bo- in her books, persona especially when she is talking like making a bid for ruling the Iron Islands. I think she's got a lot of natural charisma. I think she's got a lot of really interesting ideas about diversifying the ironborn portfolio like yeah raping or even has got us where we are but where is it going to get us in the future maybe we need to build alliances with the mainland we need to build up our trade and our economy i think that that her like it seems like the best leaders are the ones that can find compromises but also have the strength necessary to deal with the people who won't compromise and i think that she has both of those qualities and there's a couple interesting alliance possibilities the natural i think the natural uh, ally is the starks even though there's bad blood she could be like you know look you've got my brother he speaks well of your house uh he has come and treated with me and he's you know he said a lot of smart things and i've i've uh, under the shadow of my father i privately thought that we should always be you know, with the Starks, I think Cat would be skeptical but open to an overture like that. Mm. Um, and I, with their navy with White Harbor, like you know, they would just just run everybody else off the seas. So that's uh, you know, yeah, being able to control think, the trade from Essos would be pretty powerful too. I think the one thing that she has going against her is that I don't think the Ironborn will ever aspire to be anything other than independent. Uh, I don't think they have aspirations to rule the world. Um, That's the bigotry of low expectations, Anthony. Come on. Well, I, I, look, their culture <laughs> their culture is simply that you know there are other farmers out there who are willing to farm. Right, right. And, no, I, yeah. and as long as there are, are these idiots on the mainland who are willing to farm for them, they can just right. go and rape and reeve. And 
I don't think that they. I don't think ruling is part of their ironborn DNA. That's my yeah, my I prejudice. First of all, when you said Asha Yara, I like. I think I, I want to move as a fandom that we just refer to her as that because it gives her like a Baba Yaga kind of. <laughs> oh my God! It's the Asha Yara. It's the Asha. Who, who did this to your castle? It's the Asha Yara. Um, I like that. And secondly, I think that her arc was she was trying to be the Ironborn leader, like like you know, voting for hope and change. You got a, a female leading the house, which would be unheard of. If she pulled that off, I think she would have the capital and the clout to maybe make some real changes. Now, natural counter-argument is she would use all of her political capital and clout just to make that big of a transformative change, so so maybe not. Let's move on to the fifth question, which is something that's been, you know, some matter of debate and discussion amongst the fandom. Do you think it was a mistake to admit the Lady Stoneheart character from the TV series? Or, to put it another way, what role do you think Stoneheart will play in the books? Because I think those questions are kind of bound together. Right. Deep down in my soul, I'm disappointed that Lady Stoneheart doesn't pop up. Because right now, there's nothing interesting happening in sort of the internal Westerosi conflict in the show. Mm. Everyone knows that the squabbles that are happening in the Riverlands really don't matter. And, and you've got mm-hmm. this massive force coming from Essos and the massive force coming from the north. And the battleground has nothing to do with uh, Thoros of Mir or any of the, the, the band of uh, the Brothers Without ban- Banners. Um, yeah. So it would be interesting to have Catelyn around, a uh, character that we know and love and we can follow her. um through the you know where whatever she's doing with the with the brothers but i think that you can only play the resurrection card uh so many times before it gets really tired and sure. i was just making a list of the amount of the amount of characters in the <laughs> books who have yeah. re, have re, experienced some some kind of resurrection whether it be yeah. literary resurrection or actual literal like reanimation, um, and I kind of feel like, boy, Martin does that a lot. He really leans. I mean, for all of his complaining about, hey, you can't just bring Gandalf back to life. That's cheating. Boy, he really relies on that. I mean, he really loves to bring characters back to life. I, I think George would say that. The real problem is Gandalf was back and he was better in every possible way. Um, That's true. And and to think in the books that he envisions that you know death is a process that that changes you and takes a chunk out of your soul. Mm-hmm. And I just think that they and and I don't know how he's going to do that with Jon Snow, but I think that he would say that that's maybe a show failing that they've they played the resurrection card cheaply or or ineffectively or yeah it could be you know in a way that he's going to make Jon Snow a fundamentally more haunted and tragic character mm-hmm. um someone who's maybe not as able to just wantonly engage in boat sex as right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a well, non undead counterpart and if you and and if they would have included Catelyn who has who has been slit ear to ear and yeah. who was bobbing in a river for I don't know a day or so before she was until, until a dire out. wolf drug her out by the scalp. Yeah, who's 
missing half of her hair and her, and the uh-huh. the other half is white and and you know she just i mean she really does look like a zombie and yeah. and you don't get that with with Jon Snow's character or even Mm-mm. Beric Dondarrion's character no uh, not in the shit not in they, the show they they could have really gone full you know grotesque with with Catelyn if they wanted to yeah and I think that so like do you have an idea because that's the other question is like what role that Stoneheart plays in the books because I have a I have a theory that I want to hear by you I want to hear it so Arya's on this trajectory to becoming a monster in her own right like just something that's like everything that's good or wholesome or from a place of love is being replaced by vengeance and and rage and bloodthirst right right. I kind of think that what Stoneheart is supposed to be in the books is like something that Arya will run into in the near future after she begins her Faceless Man training and and she as she begins her reign of terror in the Riverlands and it will be something it'll be something that that the whatever is left of Cat will will see that this is something she doesn't want for her daughter and also that Arya will see that this isn't what she wants for her own life that they'll literally be reduced to this husk of rage and sorrow and it's going to be something that turns her arc around and gives it more of that bittersweet ending rather than just pure bitterness is mm. that is that does that does that track it's like a it's a catalyst for change to, to, to transform Arya back into something that can that can experience love and joy and hope again. I think there may be a bit of wishful thinking here going on here. I I love Arya too, and I do hope that. How she dare doesn't... you call me a sweet summer child on my own you podcast, are, Anthony? Are. I am cut to the quick. <laughs> cut, I did cut to the quick. <laughs> um. <laughs> I no look. I I really wish. I, I really hope that Arya's character arc sort of trends toward protagonist again. But man, the the path she's on just looks like she's just getting darker and deeper. Um, but I would be happy to be proven wrong on this point. Um, and no, it reminds me because I just got done watching uh, uh, Haunting of House Hill. And one of the plots, this is not really spoilery because it's just a theme, is the mother, there's a mother that gets killed and her ghost kind of wants her children back with her. So she's trying to seduce them uh, back into this house so they can stay with her forever. And like, you know, she tries to pull on the children and like that it it could be something like that where, you know, Stoneheart sees Arya and is rejoiced that she has her daughter back and that, you know, she's a vengeance beast too. And, and and tries to wrap her tent, you know, like, yes, this is our wrapper into the dark embrace. And that's something Arya recoils from. So Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, I, I don't know. Like I said, it might be wishful thinking, but um, I, I, I don't, if, if, if Stoneheart is, is exists just to keep things in the Riverland interesting, because yeah. I, I agree, like the book as well as the, the TV series uh, is in danger of collapsing into this bipolar, you know, where you have the axis of good and the axis of evil and all this like war of five kings where there's a bunch of divided loyalties is kind of like less interesting. But I think that hopefully that she's something besides just spice for the Riverlands is, is is my hope for her. Catelyn believes that all of her sons are dead. I think she does believe that. Mm-hmm. All of her trueborn sons are dead. She has no idea about the whereabouts of Arya or Sansa. Sansa. 
it seems like you, you're going to need to have some kind of resolution to that, either mm-hmm. a reunion or s- something that brings those characters into the same storyline. So that may mm-hmm. be um, fodder for your theory. Okay. Well, let's move on to our book passage reads. We're going to select passages from the uh, canon, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, to read that has, says something about the characters that, that we're discussing, uh, Catelyn, this, this week. Here's my passage from A Feast for Crows, Chapter 42, Brienne 8. So it's late in the game. Brienne is encountering the thing that had been Catelyn Stark, who is now Lady Stoneheart. The thing that had been Catelyn Stark took hold of her throat again, fingers pinching at the ghastly long slash in her neck, and choked at more sounds. Words are wind, she says, the Northman told Brienne. She says you must prove your faith. How, asked Brienne, with your sword, oathkeeper you call it? Then keep your oath to her, Milady asks. What does she want of me? She wants her son alive, or the man who killed him dead, said the big man. She wants to feed the crows like they did at the Red Wedding. Frays and Bolton's eye. We'll give her those as many as she likes. All she asks from you is Jamie Lannister. Jamie, the name was a knife twisting in her belly. Lady Caitlin, Catelyn, I, you do not understand. Jamie, he saved me from being raped when the bloody murmurs took us, and later he came back for me. He leapt into the bear pit empty-handed. I swear to you, he is not the man he was. He came after, uh, he sent me after Sansa to keep her safe. He could not have had a part in the Red Wedding. Lady Catelyn's fingers dug deep into her throat, and the words came rattling out, choked and unbroken, as cold as a stream of ice. The Northman says, She says you must choose. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for the betrayer. The sword or the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. I love Uh, it. This is... This is a big cliffhanger because this is where we end Brienne's pre- POV, where she's being forced with this this choice. She's actually we actually end it. She's being actively hanged, and she screams out a single word, which I presume is either the sword or the noose. And it doesn't make sense if it's the noose because she's she's getting that already. Uh, and then the next time we see, it's late in the game of Dance with Dragons, and she meets with Jamie at the Capitol and says that she needs to show him something in the Riverlands, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we leave things. In the show, it's interesting because Jamie just now, at the end of Season 7, bitterly leaves the Capitol to go presumably join the, the, the true cause against evil up north, right. where we know... Presumably, the base of operations for the combined forces of Danny and John is going to be Winterfell. That's going to be the staging area. Uh, now that the wall is being breached by the the White Walkers, that's going to be the staging area for the Resistance. I think he's going to head there. He's going to come into contact with Brienne. Um, and I think this is like you know this is one of the key unresolved things in in both the book and the series is what is Jamie and Brienne's relationship. What role is she going to play in either cementing his legacy as a fundamentally good or fundamentally evil character? You know, any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I love this. I mean, Martin is brilliant when it comes to this kind of thing because the last the last thing that Catelyn knows about Jamie Lannister is that he's he's utterly rotten through through and through. Yes. He is just evil. In every way that you could be evil, and right. um, and I mean, he tried to kill her son, and now her son, you know, her son is dead as a result of the the, the conflict in her mind. Uh, so Jamie Lannister is a villain, 
Now, Brienne knows that he's more complicated than that, but Brienne has sworn an oath to, to Catelyn. And, and Brienne, out of everyone in Westeros, is going to take her oaths seriously. And so, yeah, no of doubt. course, I think that uh, the word that she shouts out is the sword. If you follow her into dance, she doesn't just meet Jamie. She lies to him. She tells Jamie, I have found Sansa, or was it Arya? I forget. And you have to come with me. It's a day's ride from here, and you have to come alone, or the hound will kill her. Right. And and they and they depart. The idea here is that we know that she's lying. The hound is nowhere near either Sansa or Arya at right. this point. And she's simply telling Jamie something to get him alone. And so by all counts, it looks like uh, she's going to bring Jamie to Lady Stoneheart or kill him herself. So that's an interesting mm-hmm. it's an interesting dilemma. Uh, because yeah. because we, we, we know that uh Catelyn and Brienne have this bond, but we also know that Brienne and Jamie have a bond. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea if they're gonna be able to bring it to that complexity into into the show and I and I sincerely doubt that they they'll be able to do that. Um but yeah. at least in the books, boy, you've got several le- levels of loyalty being challenged here. Yeah, it's it's cuz I don't necessarily I I like Brienne. I don't I wouldn't call her um like clever in kind of like a scheming kind of way, but it seems like that's what she's going to have to do if she wants to square this complex web of loyalties to Catelyn and to Jamie, she's going to have to come up and engineer a solution to where, you know, Lady Stoneheart agrees with her on Jamie, uh, or like, you know, there's got, there's, there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning there, or you're going to just have Brienne deliver up Jamie, mm-hmm. um, just to fulfill her, her previous. oath. it's, it's tough because as you say, she's the one, she's really the one of the only characters in the books that takes the chivalry and her duties as a knight and protector and oath keeper seriously. So this is a unique horns of dilemma for her character. Um, al- almost any other character in a game would be like, yeah, well that was then. And this is now, uh, you should have, you should have hung me while you had the chance and, and, you know, go off to the tower of joy with Jamie. Cause I'm, I'm, I should, it should be said that I'm a big Jamie Brian shipper. So, oh, yeah. Of course, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm going judgment. for the Tormund. <laughs> the, the Tormund. That's, oh, <laughs> oh, the John, the Tormund come lately, eh? Yeah, I see. Oh I see. yes, oh yes. All um, right, well, let me uh, let me get to my passage here. So this is yes, Flash. Yes. Um, this is uh, Catelyn Seven in Clash. The walls of the keep were thick, yet even so, they could hear the muffled sounds of re- revelry. From the yard outside, Sir Desmond had brought 20 casks up from the cellars, and the small folk were celebrating Edmure's Edmure's imminent return and Rob's conquest of the crag by hoisting horns of nut-brown ale. I cannot blame them, Catelyn thought. They do not know. And if they did, why should they care? They never knew my sons. They never watched Bran climb with their hearts in their throats. Pride and terror so mingled as they seemed as one. They never heard him laugh. They never smiled to see Rickon trying so fiercely to be like his older brothers. She stared at the supper set before her. Trout wrapped in bacon, 
salad of turnip greens and fennel and sweet grass, peas and onions, and hot bread. Bran was eating methodically, as if the supper were just another chore to be accomplished. I have become a sour woman, Catelyn thought. I take no joy in meat or meat, and song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. I am a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There is an empty place in me where my heart once was. And I just chose that because I love it. It's just wonderful writing. And I think that Martin gets a lot of praise for his darkness, uh, and his cleverness, and his you know commitment to historical plausibility. I don't think he often gets praised for just how wonderful a writer he can be. And this par- this paragraph in particular is just beautiful. I think bit of a Debbie Downer, but yeah, it is. But it it does accurately portray like how she's kind of set apart. Well, um, and the other reason that I bring this up is that he. I think that what ends up happening when you are reanimated in Martin's world is you don't lose yourself entirely. At least mm-hmm. not in the case of John and Catelyn. I think that. You lose key elements of yourself, but there you can already see Catelyn on this dark trajectory. She's already claiming that she's she's uh, a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There's an empty place in me where my heart once was. I think that's foreshadowing the the creature that she's going to become, which is basically heartless. And of course, mm-hmm. you know we, we refer to her as Lady Stoneheart. And so I think that, uh, you know, she's already ruminating on vengeance. We already knew that she was fiercely loyal to her family. And all of these all of these qualities are already present within her that when she is reanimated and part of herself is lost, the parts that remain really just emphasize these the darker the darker shades of herself. So now that we've read her passages, I want to get back into the deep dive of the character like we did with Tyrion, and let's keep this kind of, we're, we're kind of general Stoneheartishness going. After her transformation to Lady Stoneheart, you know, she, you mentioned that, that, that passage that her heart had been, uh, is now empty and is going to be replaced with stone soon. Is there any of her Stark or Tully nature left in her? Is there anything that is still like a, do you think there's any ember that's within her? Or do you think that it's, she was an empty vessel that's now just been full of the fire of a R'hllor? Well, no, I absolutely do. Because I mean, the dark side of loyalty is, is a, a gangster mentality. So, you know, you are you're in the gang, and the gang d- determines your actions, and your your enemies are any, anyone that, that challenges the gang, and, sh- and and I think that that's her her mentality. Um, you know, loyalty is is generally a good thing, but when you take it to its logical extreme, it means that you're you are going to have to. Uh, do violence against anyone who challenges your the people to whom you're loyal, and uh, clearly this has happened to Catelyn. Catelyn um, wants revenge for the Red Wedding, and she, you know, and, and if th- what this means for her is that she wants Lannister and and Frey blood, and she wants it in uh, copious quantities. And and I don't think that she would if, if she's just some some sort of 
a mindless uh, rage beast, it doesn't really matter uh, who she slays, but she mm-hmm. is particularly Tully in her in, in 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 her targets. I think. Right. I mean, it's family. That's the first word in her house words, right. and everyone has wronged her family. She's she's going she's going after and holding. Um, you know, like duty honor holding Brienne to that is also consistent. So maybe more of her her Tully nature. Um, I think she's she always doesn't... a Tully. I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, she, she she has a great loyalty to her husband and children in the North, but even in the early cha- chapters of Game, you know, she she's she's not she she is a fish out of water, and pun intended, of course. Yeah. Uh, she she yeah. really is the um, she she's she's still trying to get her mind around the, these northern folk and their weird religious beliefs. She's much more comfortable in a sept. Um, she you know, and she really does sort of look fondly on her childhood, which gets her in trouble with with Baelish and and uh, Liza. Um, so did I say Liza? Am I thinking of Hamilton? Is it Lisa Aaron or <laughs> Lisa Aaron or Liza Aaron? It, I thought it was Liza. It could be Lisa though. Okay, could no, <laughs> we've we've been listening to Hamilton again around these parts, so I, I was right, thinking right. I got that wrong. Um, but you know, I think I think she is she's a creature of the South. She, I think she's always a Tully, and only secondarily a Stark. So, so in the spirit of uh, creating another catchy nickname in the line of uh, you know Asha Yara. Uh, could we could we call could we call Catelyn the gasp fish, just like her <laughs> uncle's the black fish because she's a fish out of water. I love it. <laughs> she's the she, she uh, just, uh, you have to be careful of the gasp fish because she's always just on like a fish on a dock. Um, okay, go building on that. Would you consider and bring it back to the religious topic of our book? Would you consider? Lady Stoneheart, a worshiper of the Seven, the Old Gods, or Relore after her conversion. I don't. I don't think she's necessary. We don't have any indication that she's a worshiper of Relore, although, I mean, clearly she she has been reanimated, brought back to life in some form by by worshippers of Relore. Um, we mm-hmm. don't really know if that's kind of taken hold of her ideology. Um, we know that before she is reanimated, she's most at home with Faith of the Seven. But mm-hmm. when her son, when, when everything, when the shit has hit the fan and everything's going wrong in the books, she is praying to both the old gods and the new. Mm-hmm. And she's pretty. She's a pretty religious person, right? Um, and I, I don't know how. I don't know how that would translate to the Relor worship. I mean, it certainly in the show, at least, it didn't translate into John becoming a Relor sycophant. Yeah, but he also has a respect for that, I, and that's the, it's like every one of the Brotherhood Without Banners seems to have converted to Relor. And I also like because we talk you, you talk in the book about how. Relore is very similar to the the real life religion uh, Zor- Zoroastrianism. Yeah, I probably butchered that. No, which you, is like a dual. Said it perfectly. A, a, oh, thank you. Uh, which is a dual god concept that you have uh, this god of light and a god of darkness, and that I 
I kind of subscribe to the belief that you're going to find out that the old gods and R'hllor are kind of like different sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, it's like a like a like the Force kind of concept, right? And I I kind of think that um, yeah, that, that those things all kind of lead me to believe that she is uh, kind of kind of sees herself as some kind of so- avatar of R'hllor because. So using the Star Wars analogy here, do you think that Martin thinks that there's kind of a, a a cold force in the universe and a fire force in the universe? And these are generally sort of personalityless entities that certain people are able to tap into? Yeah, I mean and and also that like there's nothing inherently good or evil about fire or or ice like you know ice can kill you uh but also can preserve, you know, that's one of the the qualities of it. And fire can can cleanse and purify and it also can destroy. And we see in the books like there are, there are good uses of fire, like you know, didn't seem Danny freeing the continent of Essos from the mm-hmm. grip of the slavers, and then there's evil uses of the fire where we see many Targaryens, you know, use their dragons to enslave and impress or oppress, and you know there are evil uses of cold of the magic, like the the White Walkers and others, because we don't fully understand their motivations, and then there's been you know beneficial uses of that that magic. Uh, like when the children are trying to resist a first men, right? Um, and with you know the the with the the blood raven and Bran trying to use their powers uh, to, to to save the realm and save humanity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be very much a you know like a, a, a not necessarily dark side or light side, but more of like you know these are powers that are elemental neutral powers and that are shaped into good and mm-hmm. evil by their use. See, I and I'm kind I of my, like, my jury's out about if there's an intelligence that's keeping score right. on, on a cosmic level. Right. I think I'm with you to a certain extent. I don't know that there's, you know, I, in other words, I don't think that there's an actual relore in Martin's imagination. Um, but I think that people play up the duality maybe too much in the sense that, I mean, you could make the argument that, okay, so there's this ancient northern power that the children of the forest have figured out how to use, and they taught the first men, and um, Blood Raven is now teaching Bran this particular power. And it's, you know, for, for lack of a better term, it's it's cold and darkness. You got the same thing going on with, with R'hllor worshippers. There's this, this grand fire power that's in some way related to dragon magic, yada, yada, yada. But I think that the do I think I'm okay with that. I just don't. The duality of it is seems to me simplistic. I I need more complexity to include something like the faceless men, who clearly have access to some sort of cosmic force, and I do not see how they fit into the, this particular duality. Fair enough. No, come on. I want you to I want I want to hear what you think about that. I mean, there's something that like I think is like part of me wants to rebel considering any kind of like religious concept uh like too simplistic or too not not satisfying because like I kind of inherently think that like chalking things up to magic and religion are kind of that's kind of already you're 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 drawn from the simplistic well. 
um, instead of having like you know come with a humanistic solution to a problem that involves coming together and working together and all that kind of stuff to be like oh well there is going to be some kind of like you know magical or there's going to be some kind of prophecy or some kind of religious thing that's going to make everything right or or add shades to the universe I like I I don't I don't know so it's a very I, I guess that's what I'm saying like. Yeah, yeah, it's like I, it's like this ancient weaponry, and you know who 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 cares about your uh, Lightbringer and your Azora High when you've got you've got dragons and you've got you've got Jon Snow. It's just it's yeah, it's like I I guess and they, maybe that's why I'm always trying to find. I mean, I, I think you can kind of boil it down to like I'm trying to find a naturalistic explanation that is like well properly understood. This is this is a science that you could probably put in the pipes or conduct through copper wire and that in a few thousand years that's what that's what westeros will uh, come to appreciate about and they'll they'll actually figure out some crazy solution to their solar cycles and and be able to beat this winter thing and like that's kind of how you know again running home the mama for for me except for i guess i'm running home for the, the papa in that case whereas you are wanting to see uh you know this the 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 religion the religious system kind of play out or and and get that more fleshed out and and more uh shaded and nuanced and detail because that's where your particular interest in bent lies would that be fair to say maybe so i think that i mean the one of the, the premise of the entire story is that there's something weird going on with the season the seasonal cycles right uh-huh and this is Martin has consistently explained this as magic. This is a this is a a, a world that's even even the seasons, even as something as predictable as the seasons, are ruled by magic, and or governed by magic. And um, if that's the case, I mean this 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 is a world that's fundamentally fundamentally built on. It may look realistic, but it's a fantasy landscape. And there's going to be a fantasy conclusion to the fantasy landscape. That's what I think. Um, you've you've never yeah, have you ever lived through a fantasy sequence turning the corner into a technology sequence? Like I was thinking like some of the old Saberhagen books where it's like it's a medieval world, but you find out that this is actually the result of what's happened after World War Three and oh. demons are actually <laughs> thermonuclear bombs incarnate and, and magic is electricity and like all this uh, you know, it's it's uh, I, I guess I and I think that I don't think George is going towards there because I think he would be rightly pilloried if he did. But there's always that in the back of my mind. Like, well, George find is out interested. That we know George loves science fiction. I just don't think he's going to do it with this particular story. You're, you're going to find out the Weirwood Net is actually just a remnant of a supercomputer network that still some people can <laughs> tune into on some kind of instinctual level. Westeros is just a grand simulation within the Matrix. <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's a simulation running in the eye of McCumber, the the bright blue eye of McCumber. Right. Uh, right. All right. Well, let's 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 put it let's put this uh, discussion to bed with some feedback from our listeners. Uh, you can send feedback into Game of Thrones at baldmove dot com, or uh, we have a weekly discussion thread on our forums for these bonus podcasts in the Game of Thrones section of our forums at forums dot com. And don't forget, we'll be turning we'll be starting to arc our coverage into Fire and Blood beginning next uh, next week. First up is Janine. 
uh, who had a reaction to our Tyrion coverage. It's sad to think that Gurm might have been influenced by our modern politically correct view of people in which little people would find tumbling or circus tricks as abhorrent or as a reason to regret adding these skills to Tyrion's character early on. Think of it in terms of how people view dwarves in Westeros, or Planetos for that matter. Like many people with different types of disabilities, dwarves are considered less thin. They do have their place in grotesqueries or mummer shows, which point out their physical flaws or differences. Within those venues, though, some dwarves do fairly amazing things, like Penny and Grot in their mummer show. They show some fairly advanced athletic ability involved in their stunts, as there is in many clowning activities done at a professional level. Here's Tyrion as a child in Casterly Rock, lonely, out of place, knowing that even though he's a rich dwarf, he's still a dwarf. Then his uncle teaches him something that turns out he's actually good at. Have you ever tried walking anywhere on your hands? It's not that easy. Can Jamie walk on his hands? Can he vault off the ledge at Winterfell and land neatly in front of Jon Snow? Had Tyrion not been a rich dwarf, he might have parlayed his talent in some clever mummer show or the other, but he's a Lannister, not a monkey, so tumbling is almost his way of shoving his dwarfism up his father's ass. Tyrion says, I'll caper as I like. You go for it, Tyrion. I don't quite understand the suggestion here. I mean, clearly we have a problem if Tyrion's only options are either to be rich or to be a performer or, you know, a circus performer. I I think that's a problem. You know, he happens to be good at tumbling, but is that his heart's desire? No, his heart's desire is to is to live a normal life with the crofter's daughter and love and be loved. And I, I, I mean, I don't think he may be good at walking on his hands, but he has to do it to the amusement of other people, um, to make a living. I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure I'm getting where she's going. Well, I think that's, that's the kid. This is like a special pleading of this edge case where it's like, consider the plight of a dwarf, in Planetos, who actually is, you know, because people dream of joining a circus, right? People dream of being clowns. People dream of being in some other type, any kind of performer. Like, consider the particular plight of a dwarf who wants, like, yes, yeah, that's his heart's desire, is to be a tumbler in some mummer show. Like, he saw it as a child, and he's like, yep, that's me. That's what I want to be. That's kind of the sucky thing about being in, in one of these classes where that's your thing. Tyrion would see that guy as betraying all of dwarfdom, right? Like, oh, way to live up the stereotype, right? right? right. Um, <laughs> sure. And that's something that, like, you know, I, it, it's hard for me to to get in that viewpoint because as a uh, it's fairly tall for my society, uh, white man. Able-bodied. Uh, I, able-bodied. Um, I have been told my whole life that I could do anything I want, and I've largely believed it. Whereas, you know, you imagine someone like in like like Penny or Grot, if their parents said, you know, Penny or Grot, you can you can be anything you want. You could be you could be a triarch of of uh, one of the great cities if you wanted. And they'd be like, yeah, whatever, dad. Uh, They just like fundamentally, that's like a big difference that they that they they can't and won't Mm -hmm. believe that. And I think that's where Martin's like saying, yeah you might have this special case where you have a dwarf child that has this affinity for tumbling or whatever, and it, it amuses people. And, and he's found this way to essentially play that stereotype for people's uh, amusement. 
but I think Martin's uncomfortable with what that says because you're right. Yeah. You're the the problem in Martin's world is not that people take pleasure from you know talented and athletic dwarf performers you know reveling in their natural abilities. It's like that's literally the only path towards success for them. Right, and like, it, they're I not going to be. I think if Janine is saying, "Hey, look, if Tyrion's good at this and he wants to pursue it." So much yeah. the better for Tyrion, um, and I would right. say, yeah, and we shouldn't, you know, we should. If if a little person wants to be a performer in that way, then who are we to begrudge that? Um, and in that case, I'm totally on board with what she's saying. I guess the point is that I don't think Tyrion. That's what Tyrion, adult Tyrion, anyway, wants to do and be. The big thing is I keep coming back to when I was editing the podcast is like it is just so weird for George to be like that's my big regret, and then. Continue to make it a. I know you disagreed with me. It's like because like it's just so easy to background. It's just so easy to just bury stuff like that in in, in book one. So people like by the time they're reading book seven, no one's gonna be like, oh yeah, the tumbler in chief is you know Danny's right hand man. <laughs> like it's like you could just ghost that. You could just go away from it. Characters characters change over time all the time. You know. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to Paul G. Just bought the book way better than I thought it would be. Uh, parenthetically, is that a compliment? I mean, I, I get it. You listen to this podcast. Uh, I swear all the time. I talk about gorilla dicks um, and animal dicks and legless when and armless When did you talk brands. about it? I've missed this. Tell me about gorilla dicks. Well, the fascinating thing about gorillas is they are they have the smallest penises of all the primates. Do they really? Yeah, and what a like what that must be to, for their self confidence, you know? Like they got this big, you know, beating their chest, and they're like ferocious, and then they got you know, huh. they got these uh, half inch half inch dicks. Wow. Okay. I know many things about animal sexuality. I don't know why. I just huh. think it's fascinating all the different ways that evolution has given animals to procreate, like now- the weird arms race of cork spirals and forks and plugs and psych like it's like it's it's crazy it's fucking crazy the way the, 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 just to, just to put two sets of genes into right. a together now, i think it's fascinating i i heard and i can't i wish I, I don't have anything to back this up but i heard recently that raccoons actually have a bone that goes into their boner. Most animals do. They have that, like, ossifer, I think, or, like, I, f- I forget what it's it's called, but, the, yeah, they have, uh, they, they do. They do have uh, an actual bone that supports their, their genitalia, whereas we are just, uh, you know, we're, we're entirely pneumatic. <laughs> wow. Well, see, you're the go-to person on, on animal dicks, so I, I figured I I, am. you'd be the person Snails. Ask. Snails have harpoons that they can fire into each other. Ooh. Um, <laughs> cats have barbed barbed dicks that the actual pain of penetration is what triggers the female's ovulation. It's fucked. It's some weird fucked up shit. Uh, mammalian, is, especially. No um, no the the anglerfish, the deep sea like scary things. The males of those actually bite the female by their genitalia, by um, and they essentially merge with her bloodstream and become an external sperm sac. All their like fins and eyes melt away, and they just become an external gonad to freely dispense their sperm whenever the female needs it. Well, I am not Wild. here to judge. I mean, I, it, it it can among consenting animals. I am look. I, yeah. If that's what if that's what you need, 
and you have a partner that's w- willing to fulfill that need, I, that's I guess right. I shouldn't be. I, I shouldn't stand in in a position of judgment over that. What happens in the abyssal plains of the deep deep ocean stays in the abyssal plains of the deep oceans. Uh, okay, for so anyway, all that to be like, I understand if you actually read this book and be like, wow, this is actually well put together and and straightforward, and so then and you can you can keep that all to you can give that all to Anthony. I was essentially the the person constantly throwing in distractions and 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 muddying his praise with my bullshit. Um, <laughs> no, no, so. So he says, I would, I would love to hear both about, or, excuse me. I would love to hear more about both of your own strugglings and wrestling with faith as you discuss Gods of Thrones. There are re- lots of reasons to love the books, but I was captivated by both the politics and faith of the characters and how it shaped them in their context. What made me fall deep into a Game of Thrones was Ned Stark's commitment to the old gods. In a country with the official religion being the faith of the seven, he and John and Rob had a personal connection with those old gods. They shaped who they are, their decisions, their leadership, and their rebelliousness. I find myself torn between the Catholic Church, the faith of my dad and his Irish ancestors, and the faith of my mother, a Native American woman from Montana who still talks about the spirit even though she converted uh, to Catholicism. I felt a connection to the people of the North who still held up their old traditions versus the modern Southern gods. I'm sure you both have had your struggles with the faith reflected in many of the characters, and I hope to hear more about it. So thank you for the, the feedback, and it's really interesting. And so Paul G. I, doesn't want to hear us talk about animal penises? No, he wants to talk to somebody. What I thought would be interesting is a concept that you introduced me to in our book, which is that of religious syncretis- syncretism? syncretism? Yeah, syncretism. What? Yeah. And, and, and that is essentially the attempted or actual melding of religious uh, traditions. And you can see that, like, you know, one of our big holidays coming up is Christmas. And uh, if, 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 if you don't know, let me be the first to tell you that Christmas is the perfect example of many, many, many religious traditions and faiths coming together and being transformed um, by yet another into something that's acceptable. You're taking, you know, Roman worship of of sun gods, and you're taking uh, Celtic and Norse worship of tree gods, and you're taking Catholicism's, uh, you know, belief in the Trinity, and and and, and you're uh, taking a belief in capitalism and, and consumerism and. Yeah, and you're you're taking yes, the god of consumerism, and you're injecting that toxicity, and then you get you get Christmas, which everybody loves, and if, why not? I love it, and I'm not I'm not I don't have any any detectable faith at all. So I thought, and and some some in universe examples of syncretism is the fact that everyone says by the old gods and the new, um, or the fact that the high priest, the high septon of Westeros, has as his scepter, as his staff, a, a weirwood staff to show that there's like this this blended faith. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about, you know, uh, some Mesoamerican or First Nation faith and Catholicism ma- mashup because that's kind of been on my mind even before uh, Paul sent this email because last week's uh, Romanoffs, um, one of the characters, there, there's, there's this. Uh, kind of travelogue in Mexico City and he talks about how you know the native beliefs were were consumed by the catholicism but how those actually shaped the, the way mm-hmm. the catholic church is observed in those countries and I thought you know yeah. since we have a religious scholar it might be nice to talk about that yeah it's interesting i guess i mean the the best way to illustrate this is simply to say well if you observe catholicism in uh, central and south america 
and you observe Catholicism in Rome or Ireland, um, do they look different? And the answer, of course, is yes. And and then you ask, well, why? And and the the answer, of course, is going to be well, as these cultures adopted Catholicism, uh, a lot of the culture interpreted these theological categories and religious practices through their own lens. In other words, it's it's like a it's like a sponge. So the culture is the sponge and the sponge gets saturated with Catholicism. And of course, the shape of the the sponge isn't determinative by the saturation. So it, the shape of these two cultures are going to remain intact in some way. And so, you know, you, you could go you could go to certain places in South America and and worship like Our Lady of Guadalupe. And there's something right, about yeah. there's something about worshiping Mary in in this particular persona, Our Lady of Guadalupe, that can only happen in that particular place. So much so that if someone makes a promise and a prayer to the Lady of Guadalupe, at some point you, you can't just do that from anywhere in the world. You have to go to that particular place to do it. Now that's a that's a carryover from pre-Catholic re- religiosity, if if we can call it that, mm-hmm. pre-Catholic spirituality. In the same way that, and I think Martin plays a, this up a lot, is that in if you go to Scotland or Ireland or Wales, uh, certain places in England, you're going to find Celtic ideas that predate Catholicism, and yet they've been kind of married together. Uh, so if you go to like Lindisfarne or um, there's a lot of other examples of places in, in Europe that were spiritual places where the gods were worshipped long before the Catholic Church ever arrived uh, in in that part of Europe. And you see this all over the place. In other words, you, it's not it's not simply a... Um, a, a, a a wholesale conversion. It's really kind of like an adaptation. Um, and I imagine that that's, uh, that, 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 um, Paul's, uh, mother, a native American who's, uh, in some way embraced Catholicism experiences that on an intimate level. It's almost like, I, I think like far from like feeling like you're betraying either tradition by kind of like attempting to blend them into your own life like that's actually a very human thing like that's that's there is like uh at this point in human history where all the cultures have kind of intermixed uh, globally there is not there's probably no such thing as an untouched faith that's just pure like like some kind of mountain stream that's just popped out of the rocks and like yep there it is and it's got not it's it's undiluted so right there 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 is no like that pure faith anymore, right? Have you ever sang "God Bless America" at a baseball game? Um, and, and football is becoming more and more the civic religion. There's something yep. about um, these sports that are integral to our civic identity, so much so that we will marry sort of the sacred nature of the military, the sacred nature of Christianity. They're all kind of melded into this thing. That that is part of the the American civic identity, 
um, that gets this this sacred nature, which is why people get all bent out of shape if people start to mess with it, um, either messing mm. with the tradition um, of of uh, you know putting your hand over the over your heart when the flag is is presented. Sure, um, standing attention, yeah. Messing with the, you know, the the way that the game of baseball is played. You know, these are all very religious attitudes toward our civic identity. Mhm. I think that stuff is fascinating. Uh and I thank you for to both Janine and Paul for giving us some uh some feedback this week. If you would like to get in on this discussion, it's easy to do so. Just email Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Uh, or again, there's there's separate threads for each of these episodes in our forums that you can discuss there. Forums.baldmove.com. Uh, if any of this int- uh, information is, seems to be interesting to you, I will say that there is a bunch more in our book, Gods of Thrones: A Pilgrim's Guide to Religions of Ice and Fire, available in both ebook and physical book form. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, and I will include a link again in the show notes. If you would like to, to get in on that, and as Anthony says, it makes it make it looks good under a tree, it looks good in the box, it looks good in the stocking. Uh, it, it's it's a great gift for a hard to please Game of Thrones fan because uh, you know this is information that they can't get anywhere else. It's it's unique and fresh takes on things with some humor. Uh, I guarantee you'll learn at least a few things, and you'll laugh hopefully a couple times if if not more. Uh, and there is zero gorilla dicks. <laughs> Absolutely no gorilla dicks to be found. Maybe Not that's something we can, we can play up in volume two. If if this yeah. is a hit, if like we can we can do deep dives in uh, the evolutionary arms race, which is sexuality. Uh, we, we can certainly do that in volume two. Maybe we'll get overwhelmed by feedback. That's what the that's what the yes. people want. We're, there's and still time for us to shape that, Anthony. I should say that you and I both lean in ways toward ethical utilitarianism. Which means we want to bring the greatest amount of joy to the greatest amount of people, and True. in order in order to do that, of, of course, I should say again that we are aiming for fifty Amazon reviews. That will help us bring the greatest amount of Game of Thrones joy to the greatest amount of people. So we will end it at that uh, again until next week when we have uh, you know we'll be talking about Gods of Thrones, but we'll also hopefully uh, have some early looks at Fire and Blood. Uh, depending on when Amazon delivers my copy. I'm hoping to get it on the actual day of release so I have a day or two to look over it. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Anthony. We'll see you later. 